Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We are continuing in this wonderful Gospel, and today we'll actually kind of wrap up chapter 11. We have been looking at who Jesus is. Chapters 11 and 12 remind us of who Jesus is in context of how people relate to Him. And now Jesus here at the end of chapter 11 is kind of bringing it home. These final verses of the 11th chapter of Matthew, they show us exactly who Jesus is, who He truly is. Remember, Jesus begins this chapter by comforting John's doubt. Remember John the Baptist sent word from prison to Jesus, who are you? Am I? Are you really the one? <laughs> and Jesus comforts his doubt by reminding him about what the Messiah was called to do and pointing John to see what Jesus' activities were doing to prove who he was. And then Jesus challenged some of John's followers who were in the crowd to be confident in who they went to see down at the Jordan. And John the Baptist was the Elijah who was prophesied to come. Remember that by teaching the crowd who John the Baptist was, Jesus was teaching this crowd, he was teaching them something about themselves. By revealing their desire to follow John the Baptist, Jesus reminds them of what they were truly searching for. They were truly searching for the Messiah, and they were searching for God's voice. Then Jesus challenged the Pharisees and the scribes who challenged him. And Jesus points out their fickle and childish nature. You remember that? They were religious people who really did not know what they wanted, and they were just like little children who couldn't figure out what game to play. That's what Je- That was Jesus' condemnation of them. Then the verses prior to today's text, the last week we saw Jesus' harsh rebuke against the cities in Galilee that were bored with him. They were indifferent to him. And his words were harsh. Despite the miracles and the great teachings of Jesus that they lived with and they witnessed almost daily, they ignored Jesus. And Jesus' words for them were very harsh. Now we come to the conclusion of this chapter, this wonderful discourse from our Lord. And here Jesus drives home exactly who he is. That's what I want us to see today. Jesus is going to tie this whole teaching up in a nice little bow. He's going to make it very clear. Jesus is the Son of God who chooses who to reveal the truth of salvation to. What we're going to see here. He is the Son of God who chooses to call whomever whomever the Father wishes Him to call to be part of the kingdom of heaven. But the ones called to hear this truth are those who are seen as undesirable by the religious nobility. That's something we're going to see here. Jesus calls the ones that the religious nobility, the elite, would never call. And that's who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the humble. He's talking to the tired. He's talking to the poor in spirit. So now, let's read this passage together here at the end of Matthew chapter 11. If you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And let's see what our Savior has to say about who He is, but also how we are to listen. Beginning in verse 25. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father God, you speak to us so boldly and clearly here through your Son. He is expressing exactly his mission, the one Father God that you have given him, and we are blessed by the words of your servant Matthew that we now hear these words today. Lord, and there are many in this room and there are many who are listening to this sermon right now who are weighed down and they can't figure out why. And they can't figure out how to release the weight. And the words of your son Jesus here are so rich and they're so kind, but they're so bold. Lord, I pray that you would use this time to speak to us, speak to each and every person here, Father, in their spirits. Let them hear the truth of the gospel. Let them hear the truth of salvation. Let them hear the truth of what your son Jesus Christ is saying here, that we come to Christ and our burden is released. And I pray, God, that this time, this moment right now would be something that would glorify you, that you would speak here and that we would hear clearly and that, dear Lord, your name would be glorified in this room. This time is for you, Father, so please be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Jesus now concludes this discourse of his to the crowds that were nearby. Remember, it started with some disciples of John. It expanded to some other followers of John in the crowd, and then to the Pharisees and the scribes, then to the unrepentant cities, the ones who are indifferent. And now Jesus is tying up his teaching really neatly here, isn't he? Jesus concludes this teaching, this discourse, if you will, by emphasizing that those who come under his yoke will be at peace with the Father and the Son. If you come under Christ's yoke, you will learn from Jesus the Son. And if you come under his yoke, you will not plow along in this fallen world alone, and you will not plow along under the burden of the of legalism and the law. You go, if you come under his yoke, you will share in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's amazing. If you come under the yoke of Christ, you will no longer be crushed under the unbearable weight of the rabbinic law of the time, this unbearable weight of sin and trying to earn favor is an unbearable burden that no one can do. And Jesus makes it clear. Come to me. 
and share my yoke. And I will be with you. You see that? Let us take a look at this. This rich teaching. Many of us have heard these words before. Come to me all who are labor and are heavy burden laden and I will give you rest. And some of us think that means that we could take a vacation for the rest of our lives. That would be wonderful. Amen. How many of us would like to walk out of here, walk into the the boss tomorrow morning and say, I am on permanent vacation because Jesus said I am now at rest. Y'all are laughing because you know that if you do that, you will then fall into poverty. That's not what Jesus is saying. So let's take a look here at what Jesus is actually teaching because it is so rich. This actually summarizes the gospel so well that if we're not careful, we're going to miss the beauty of it. Amen? So let's take a look here. Let's look here at verses 25 and 26. Jesus, here's what he says, at the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus, as he condemns the Pharisees and the scribes, and as he condemns the cities around Galilee who ignored him, he now stands in front of the crowd and literally praises his Father in heaven right there in front of him. You see the words there? He's praying in public while he's also teaching. That's wonderful. And here's what he's saying. He begins this conclusion by praising the Father. He's praising the Father in prayer. But this is not a silent, head-bowed type of reverent, oh, dear Father, thank you. He is boldly expressing his gratitude to the Father in heaven, praising him so that all can learn. Right? The impression here is that Jesus boldly and he loudly praises the Father for all to hear. How many of us have done that this week? Crickets. How many of us have boldly and publicly praised the Father for all to hear? This is what Jesus is doing. And he's teaching something profound here. And there are two people that Jesus thanks the Father for in these verses. One, he, he thanks the Father that things have been hidden from the wise and the understanding. Who are those wise and understanding people? They are those who are wise and understanding in their own intellect, in their own glory. The Pharisees and the scribes. Can we also say in our modern day in the church, those of us in the church, we are wise and understanding in our own intellect and our own Bible study. Thank you, Lord. I need nothing more. We fall right in the same sin. But there are also other people that Jesus thanks the Father for, and he thanks him for the little children. Now, in contrast here, we're going to get to this here in a little bit. He, he's contrast. Remember, he just condemned the Pharisees and the scribes for being fickle children. Now he's talking about the Father, talk, talking to the Father. Thank you for revealing your will to the children. He's now talking about the undesirables, those less than noble, those that are humble, the disciples who are following Jesus and responding to the wonderful miracles and teachings that Jesus has been doing. 
He's thanking the Father, one, that he did not reveal the mysteries of the salvation to the arrogant Pharisees and scribes, those wise and understanding, but he's thanking the Father that he has revealed these things to the undesirables, the little children. He's thanking the Father for that. What are the things hidden that Jesus thanks the Father for? The Father reveals that which is hidden. These things refer to the kingdom. Right here, and remember when we look here at, at verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What are these things that the Father has hidden from the wise and the understanding, but revealed to the little children? These little things refer to the kingdom of heaven, the very thing which Jesus himself is focused on. Remember when we started this, this discourse back, actually before this, the other discourse, the, the Sermon on the Mount that began way back in Matthew chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus lays out through the Sermon on the Mount exactly what the kingdom of heaven is. These things. This is the very focus of Jesus' ministry. He is revealing the kingdom of heaven and the wise and the understanding are totally missing it because they seek to understand the things of God under their own intellect and their own way. Yet the ones who are humble and undesirable in the community are the ones who are poor in spirit, and they are the ones who Jesus is revealing the kingdom of heaven to as the Father is revealing it to him, and this is his will. And Jesus is praising the Father for this activity. Wouldn't you just love for, for everybody in the world to know exactly what the kingdom of heaven is just like that? Wouldn't it make evangelism so much easier? <sighs> but evangelism is a struggle because the, the revelation of the kingdom of heaven is by the will of the Father to those who are little children, the undesirables, the humble, the poor in spirit. That's who hears the, these things that Jesus is talking about. So look here, look, let's look here at verse 26 too. It's a short verse, but it, it connects to verse 25. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was the Father's will to reveal the hidden things of the kingdom of heaven, those mysterious truths of what is the kingdom of heaven. The Father revealed it. And he reveals it to who he wishes. It is his will to do it in this manner. That's the sovereignty of our Lord. He reveals who he is, how he chooses to reveal himself, to whom he chooses to reveal himself. Now that's a deep, that's a bigger can of worms that we can open up as we go along. But we all understand here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church that God is sovereign. He will do what he will do. He will say what he will say. He will, he will love all of us, but he will save those who he saves. Jesus emphasizes here in verse 26 that the hidden truths of the kingdom of heaven was God's gracious will. And the King James says, so it seemed good in thy sight. It is good that God does this. God reveals the mysteries of the kingdom, and it is good. And it is his gracious will to do so. You see that? Jesus, I mean, God the Father didn't have to reveal anything about himself if he did not want to. 
The pagan gods of the ancient world are those gods that do not reveal themselves. They do whatever they want with fallen humanity and they, they treat humanity like play toys. And humanity is at the, at the will of the, really the demon gods. That's really what they were. But God the Father, the one true God, in His gracious will that He saw as good, revealed the truth of the kingdom and the truth of salvation as He wanted it. That's amazing. And that's important in contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes and the cities who rejected Christ. They wanted to follow God and think about God the way they wanted to. Yet Jesus is praising the Father here in verses 25 and 26 and thanking the Father that this was His gracious will. Now, who follows the will of God? Except The only ones who follow the will of God are those who are humble. The ones who follow the will of God are those who are rejected by the wise and the understanding. Who are them? The wise and the understanding in their own eyes are not humble. There's a contrast here. So God in His wisdom, He graciously willed that the only ones who would hear the truth about the kingdom of heaven would be the little ones, the ones who were humble. God alone calls to salvation the humble little children. You see that? He calls the humble, the ones who will hear the truth rather than the others because God desired to compose his kingdom out of who he wanted to compose it. He composed his kingdom. He populates the kingdom of heaven with an obscure flock. That's one way to put it. The obscure, the ones who were not noble and in the public eye, the ones who are meek, humble, out of the way, discarded, if you will. That's who God populates the kingdom of heaven with. And it's God's grace that is poured out upon those who do not deserve his grace. That's, that's what we see here too. God's grace is poured out upon those who do not deserve it. That's the very definition of grace. And those who do not receive honor and noble praise by men are those who God calls to be in his kingdom. See, those who come into the kingdom of heaven, according to what Jesus has been teaching us here, and what he's finalizing here, is that you do not come into the kingdom of heaven by your own citizenship. You just don't show up and set up house in God's kingdom. You are called. You are, God, by his gracious will says, come. Let me give you rest. And then in verse 27, as we see here, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There we go even deeper. How do we know who God is? <laughs> Jesus makes it clear. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except who the Son reveals to. Wow. The first thing that we see here in Jesus' conclusion is that those who come to Him, that is, those who are humble, who hear what Jesus chooses to reveal, will share in the kingdom of heaven. Now, having established that the kingdom comes from this mysterious revelation of God, so to speak, those who come under God's purposes, 
Jesus establishes the truth here that all salvation is handed over to the Son by the Father in heaven. And salvation in Christ alone is the point here in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is talking about salvation through the Son alone. That's it. No other way. Not through our own intellect, not through our own wills, not through our own glory, not even through our own choice of where to, to reside in the kingdom. We don't set up ourselves in the kingdom. This is something that only God does through the Son. Life itself here is exhibited to us in Christ. And no man can partake of this eternal life, this life that is granted to us. No one can partake in this who does not enter by the gate of faith through Christ, period. You cannot partake in eternal life unless you come through the gate of Christ. Christ is that gate. The faith in Christ is the way that we are ushered in. Faith in Christ's what? Faith in Christ's atonement for our sins? Faith in Christ's propitiation, that's a big word. What does that mean? It's the penalty for our sins is satisfied. The wrath of God is appeased through the Son. Faith in Christ, that that which God himself ordains as the means to salvation. Faith that this is the way to eternal life. This is the way to eternity. To salvation through Christ, belief and faith and trust in this is the key. Although salvation was always hidden with God the Father, Jesus here reveals that salvation as He the Son is the channel by which God's grace flows. God's grace flows through the Son. And we receive this mystery, this revealed truth by faith. Not by intellect, not by studies, Amen. And I say that, let me, let me bring this home, y'all. This is a little bit of a side tangent, but let me under, let me emphasize this really quickly. In our tradition here, we're, we're more of a reformed-minded body. And one thing I love about the reformed approach to Scripture is, number one, Scripture tells us what is true, and the reformed ideas come from this. But at the same time, here's one of the, here's one of the, the pitfalls that I see. We can become so arrogant and prideful in our intellect of the word and our intellect of theology. Every now and then I'll throw out a theological term, but I hope most of the time I try to explain it. And if I ever don't, somebody call me on it. Okay. Because we can get so prideful in our big words and our big theologies and our big philosophies of God that we can lose and miss the fact that it is faith in that which is unseen, that is the gate to salvation. Faith in Christ who shows us the mysteries of the kingdom. That reminds us that we don't understand it all yet. <laughs> Amen? No matter how much Greek and Hebrew we learn, no matter how many systematic theology books we have on our bookshelves, no matter how many Bible commentaries we have, and I, I'm, a lot of you are going, yeah, pastor, we know. There's a lot of folks in this church who have more books than we know what to do with. But at the same time, a true bibliophile never has too many books. We can always stack them in the corner. That's okay. 
but pride in our knowledge, pride in our books, pride in our big ideas. It's what the Pharisees and the scribes did. We must remember that what Jesus is showing us here is that trusting in the Son has the favor and the truth of the Father or is himself the truth. Jesus himself is the truth that the Father himself is ushering into us to see. The sinner who believes, the sinner who receives this truth by faith, who may not have all the answers, who trusts in Christ and Christ alone, is the one who finds peace, whose yoke they share. This salvation is secure and is no longer such a great mystery, even though it's still mysterious. <laughs> Although we're always looking to understand this mystery of the gospel, this mystery of Christ, even now, even today, we do have the revelation of God the Father through His Son and through His Word. We're not left alone. God has revealed all through His Son and through His Word. And we as the church have faith that what Christ has done for us as God has shown us in his word and as Christ has taught us through the word, we say that is enough. And that's the peace that God grants us. It's enough. Jesus is calling us, actually here in verse 27, when he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. What he's saying is, Jesus is calling us to unite with him in celebrating these hidden things of the Father. Come to Him and unite with Him that the hidden things of the Father are now revealed. We are uniting and celebrating with Him that the truth is now here. No one can come to faith on their own noble acts or their noble intellect, but only the mysterious illumination of the Holy Spirit can grant us any understanding or any hint of faith in what is being revealed here. You see that? We cannot understand this on our own. Only through the calling and the drawing of the Holy Spirit can we even hope to even have faith in what we do not see and we do not know. That's it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now look also here in verses 26 and 27. We also see that those who come to Jesus will share in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brings. They will know the Father as Jesus knows the Father. You see that? They will know the Father in heaven as Jesus himself knows the Father. God is no longer seen as this distant, unknown deity. He is revealed as not being very far from his children, his people. He's right there. God the Father is not this distant, off in another dimension God. He is always here. Sin has caused us to not see this. Sin has caused us to be blinded to the truth of who our God, Father, the Creator of all is. He's never left us. He didn't just abandon His creation, even though He had every right to. He had every right to destroy it. He did once with water, yet still maintained a remnant. 
to start over. Look here in verse 28. As we come here, this right here, the verse 28, this is, this is the key here to this whole passage. As Jesus is praising the Father in heaven and thanking Him and saying that if you, if anyone who knows the Son knows the Father, here's what He says in verse 28. Underline this if you haven't already in your Bible. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What great words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even in those words, we know that salvation is through Christ alone and salvation only comes to those who hear the truth of the gospel and believe the truth of the gospel. Yet, even though salvation is only through Christ and salvation only happens as the Holy Spirit convicts and draws, there is also here in this word, in this verse, come to me. In other words, what Jesus is saying in verse 28 is you're not going to sit around on your lounge, on your couch, waiting for the Holy Spirit to save you. This is also a part of reform thinking that we also have to be careful about. I understand and I believe clearly from the scriptures that we do not, we don't earn our salvation, nor do we come and choose salvation. Salvation is that which the Holy Spirit reveals in us through the Son. Yet we're not sitting back on our couch casually waiting to be picked up by the Holy Spirit and drugged to the cross either. That's laziness. There is an aspect of the sinner that must come to Christ. Come to me, he says. That's an imperative here. This is not a, um, well, if you choose to want me, will you just meet me after the service and we might drink a cup of coffee and chat a little bit. Jesus, you see, Jesus is not saying meet me at the coffee shop and let's have a discussion about what salvation might be. What's he saying? He's making a very clear directive here. It's an imperative. If you remember your English grammar, it's a command. Come. To me. Who? Who comes to him? He's saying, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come to the focus of this passage here, and Jesus calls those who are with him at that moment to come. This is why it is appropriate to invite and say, come to Christ. We can repeat those words to folks. We can come to Christ. Here we see that Jesus not only reveals the Father's kingdom, that not only is the Holy Spirit revealing the mysteries of salvation through Christ alone, but that one must step toward this salvation. Jesus will not drag you. You have someone that you're praying for? Keep praying for them. Pray that the Holy Spirit would hound their souls to the point of submission. There is a time-honored tradition called the Hound of Heaven, that great poem of the Puritans. <laughs> the Hound of Heaven is chasing me down. Yet, Jesus will not drag you into the kingdom. Now, he may make you miserable enough to where you run to the kingdom. That's my testimony. 
And he will not drag you to the kingdom. You see that? The struggle of carrying the burden of sin alone is one that Jesus will relieve us from. The burden here is the burden of sin. The rest that one seeks from one's burden of sin is only possible in the rest that Jesus brings. And that burden on your back of sin that is weighing you down is something that if you want to carry the rest of your life, you'll carry it into eternity too. Yet Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. You see that? Here, Jesus gives rest for the weary soul by ushering in peace with the Father. What is sin? Sin is that barrier between us and our Creator, Father in heaven. Sin is the center of all our struggles and worries. Agreed? Sin is the self-centered focus that we are the masters of our own destiny. Sin is the self-centered focus that we are in control of our own lives. And sin is the self-centered focus that we are lords of this world. This self-centered focus is the burden that we all carry. Every one of us. Jesus is revealing the truth to us here in, in, in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He's pointing out the truth. He sees the truth. You cannot hide the fact that sin is a burden on you. It is weighing you down. And Jesus is saying, I will give you rest from it. Amen? Jesus is revealing this truth here. He says, come to him. And the burden of sin will fall away as we fall to our knees before a righteous and holy Savior. Wow. Anyone who's been with Christ for a while, do y'all even remember the moment that the burden of sin was lifted from you? Have you pondered that memory in a while? <laughs> have you pondered that for a while? There are some in this room who have never experienced that burden of sin being released from the, your back. Probably because you're so comfortable with the burden that you're saying it's okay. But let me tell you, if that burden is released from your back, you'll realize how much of a burden you were really under all along. And Jesus here is saying, come to me and that burden will be released. I'll give you rest. Now let's look here at verse 29. As he continues here, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus now speaks, and one hand he tells us to drop the burden of sin, allow Jesus to take that from you. But then in the next verse, he speaks about us picking up a new load on our backs or our shoulders. You see the, you see the irony here? On one hand, he says, Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, now take up my yoke. Has anybody ever, ever carried a yoke? Anybody ever been on a farm and seen these things that they put between two farm animals, usually oxen? Have you ever seen that thing? That's not very light. What does Jesus, Jesus says, get rid of one burden. Is he giving us another? Let's see what he's saying here. First, he says that our burden of sin will fall away in the peace of the Father. But now he calls us, he calls the redeemed, those who come to him to pick up a new load. And the idea of a yoke here is the idea of sharing the burden. 
Ponder. It's, it's not that, yes, Jesus takes the sin upon himself. He does. He takes all of our sin upon himself. But Jesus is also talking about sharing the burden of living in a fallen world together. Although the sin of the redeemed is forgiven and we are granted peace with Christ, we are still in a fallen reality. Jesus says here to take his yoke upon one's shoulders and a yoke would be placed across two shoulders of oxen as they plowed the field. Many of us plow along in this fallen world by ourselves or under our own burden or under the burden of the law, the Mosaic law, trying to earn our our favor of God, trying to earn our salvation. We're plowing along in this world with a burden. The burden of keeping the law as the means to salvation was the burden that I think Jesus is also calling out here. Because who is he condemning in the verses prior? He's condemning the Pharisees and the scribes. He's condemning those cities who rejected him because, oh, well, we have the law. And Jesus is condemning sin and he's condemning the means to salvation by keeping the law. By uniting with Christ in this mysterious revelation of God's truth, one comes alongside Jesus as Jesus comes alongside the redeemed. And Jesus provides a yoke of salvation that frees the sinner from the oppressive burden of sin and law-keeping. Jesus takes the burden from us while at the same time he shares the burden of living with us. It's a both and. Jesus does free us from the curse of sin, yeah. But but we're still here in a world ruled by sin. Anyone who thinks that salvation is that which frees all of the world from the burden of sin is missing the reality of today. Yes, salvation frees us from the burden of sin. Yet, we are still living with many people who are in sin, and even those who are redeemed are still sinning. Amen? Because anyone who is saved by the blood of Christ, who claims, I no longer sin, you are lying just like the Pharisees and the scribes lied. We're in a, we're still in a world struggle here. And Jesus, in this yoke of his, it is gentle. It is peaceful, yet a yoke is still meant to work and to plow along. We're still here in a world ruled by sin, so the yoke here, it it is a gentle yoke, and the yoke here is a yoke of humility. It is a yoke of learning from Jesus how to release the burden of sin, to embrace the yoke of salvation from him, and he will come alongside us, and he will carry the load with us, while at the same time taking the burden from us. It's a both and. He takes the burden of sin away, yet then he also walks alongside us as we journey along in this life. And Jesus is gentle. Jesus is humble. In stark contrast to the burden of the Mosaic law that was neither gentle nor humble. Amen? 
Yet we in the church, we it is so easy because, oh, we want everything just to be so so easy and understandable. We have rules to follow and boxes to check off in the Christian life. If you don't do this, then this. Let's understand this a little bit deeper. We're going to close with this text. Peter helps us understand what Jesus means. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew chapter 11 verse 30 says that. But if you flip over to Acts chapter 15, we're going to see what Peter says to the church, actually to the church council here. Acts chapter 15. This will help us understand what the yoke is that Jesus is talking about. Acts chapter 15. Let me kind of set the tone here, and then we're going to read verses 6 through 11 together. We don't need to read all of it, but verses 1 through 5, this is how we can summarize this. Here's the scene. There was a, 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 there was a disagreement in the early church. I mean, this would have been within the first few years after Christ died and ascended. You talk about troubles in the church today. Guess what? They had, they had difficulties and questions even in the first century. Okay. Here's one of them. One of the questions that they had to deal with in the early church here, when the apostles were still there, was the burdens placed upon new Gentile converts. The law of God was a good thing. The law of God is a good thing. And it was given to the children of Israel through Moses. But along the way, this law was distorted by the rabbinic traditions, the Pharisees and the scribes, that they, they distorted what God intended to be good. And that's the very definition of what is evil. Evil is not an equal force against the good. Evil is simply a distortion of what God says is good. Paul and Barnabas take this question of the Mosaic law upon the Gentile converts to the Jerusalem council. And more specifically, it was the question of whether the Gentile converts should be circumcised for their salvation. It was a Mosaic command. The Mosaic law said to. Here was the question. Should the Gentiles also follow this practice as part of their salvation? And Peter stands up and he responds to them. There, there was there was apparently within this, and again, I'm just laying the groundwork here, verses 1 through 5. Verse 5 says, But some believers who believed in to who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So even within the, first, the Jerusalem church, you had those who came out of the Pharisaical tradition, who were believers. And they were struggling with the application of the Mosaic law. Now, that being said, let's look at verses 6 through 11. This is Peter's response. And it will help us understand, I think, deeper what Jesus is meaning by the yoke back here in Matthew chapter 11. Look here at verse 6, Acts chapter 15. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, you think, uh, you think church business meetings and debates right now are, are fun. I bet you they probably debated for days on this. 
The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You see what Peter is explaining here? Neither the apostles nor the patriarchs of old could bear the yoke, the burden of the yoke of the law on their own. They couldn't. It was impossible. It's an impossible standard of righteousness that nobody could obtain. And Jesus takes that impossible burden upon himself. What is the true method of salvation? We see this even here in Acts chapter 15. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's the first step the only step, the clear step. God cleanses their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, verse 11, is salvation. But we believe, believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. That's salvation. It's not a yoke of law-keeping, nor is it a yoke of the burden of sin. It is believing and having faith in the grace poured out upon the sinner through the blood of Christ, period. That's it. Friends, let me ask you this question as we close. How many of us in this room and how many people who are listening to this right now, because we do record this for a a podcast every week, it just goes out on the podcast feed. There are those who listen to this not just from here. How many people who are hearing these words from Matthew's gospel, the words of Jesus himself, how many of us are trying to carry the burden of sin on our own? How many of us are even trying to carry the burden of the yoke of religious legalism on our own? Both crush the spirit. And Jesus here at the end of Matthew chapter 11 is saying this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a calling here. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, Jesus says. 
and that weight that's on you, I'm going to give you rest from it. Now that rest again is twofold. It's the rest that the burden is removed from your back. Like the, the classic Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress. If y'all are even familiar with that story, what a rich gift to the church where Christian, and if you remember in that story, that the main character Christian, he doesn't have this burden released in the first page of the story. It's quite a ways into the story that he finally, finally, finally makes his way to the cross. And it is there that the burden falls off his back. Yet, the second part of this burden releasing is that Jesus says, take on my yoke. We don't take on the yoke on our own. Nobody straps a yoke to their their backs on their own to go plow a field. You share the burden of the yoke together, plowing along. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and gentle and light. That doesn't mean you won't keep working on for, you won't keep working for the kingdom. You also won't keep working to struggle in this fallen world. This is the Apostle Paul who says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning that we're going to continue to live in a fallen world and this tension between salvation and a fallen world will be a constant tension that we are working through. And Jesus says, take on my yoke. He says, come to me. Now, we're going to transition here into a time of worshiping at the Lord's table. And this is a time where we, the church, the Christians, we come to the table and we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember that He died on a cross for us. That He took the burden of our sin upon Him as God the Father graciously willed it to be. And it's good for the church to remember that. It's good for the church to be reminded that this burden of sin is no longer mine to carry alone because that burden has been taken from me. This burden has been released from me. I am washed clean, yet I'm still struggling in this fallen world. And thank you, Jesus, for coming alongside me as I go. But let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time to come to your table. Your Son, Jesus Christ, gave us the gift of this time to remember His body broken and His blood spilled. And I pray, God, that You would use this time for Your glory as You edify the church, as You edify Your people, as we remember the price paid for our sin. We thank You again and again and again. Use this time for your glory, Father. Bless this moment for the remembrance of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.